I was telling someone yesterday, I think it was, that, uh, that you know, when it goes off, it's kind of like this gentle reminder, but, but there's also this sense of anxiety, too, like, oh, i got to get back on my feet, you know? <laughs> so I'm not sure how healthy the bell is, but it works. Well, um, good morning and welcome. If you are new here, we're glad you're here. Uh, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor, and my privilege on most Sundays to bring God's Word. We as a church um, are formed by His Word. He is brought us to new life through his word. He sustains us by his word, and he commissions us with his word. So an important aspect of what we do is, is being in his word. And um, I trust that you saw that in the words that we sang and the things that we shared and so forth. And, and as we go before at the end to share in communion, we're doing that in obedience to his word, experiencing uh, really communion is a picture of the truths of his word, the core picture of the gospel. And as a church, we normally go through series and different books of the Bible, so we are in the book of Revelation right now, um, and uh, we're learning from God's Word. This is a book that is in the Bible by God's design. It's not meant to be a, a freak show at the end of the Bible. It's meant to have a real application for our lives, and so our desire is to go through this and to learn and to, to gain truth and to have our lives shaped by the Word of God. So today we are in Revelation 3, 14 to 22. And the title is Yuck. Uh, that's the, the emoji for yuck, in case you don't know. Um, it's especially effective when it's green. Um, and you'll soon see, I think, why it's a, an appropriate title. But have you guys ever had uh, a, an experience with food where that was your expression? That it was just so disgusting that you just went, yuck, you, ga you gagged? Um, for me, actually, it's very rare to have that experience because I like food. Uh, I like all types of food. And I've never met a type of food I didn't like. I've, so, so, by the way, that includes things like fish eyeballs and cow brains and things like that, which I like. I, uh, I wouldn't make a habit of eating those things, but, but uh, I like all sorts of food. But there was one time when I was eating some food where I had that response. I was with some friends. We were at a, a Chinese restaurant, restaurant, and we had um, hot and sour soup. And all my buddies, uh, whose work buddies I was with, they're all eating their hot and sour soup, having a great time. And somehow I caught a whiff of ammonia uh, from the soup. Now, I don't know, maybe it was imagined or whatever. But my body shut down, actually, because you normally have a great appetite. But the ammonia smell just told my body, danger, danger, don't eat this thing. And all my buddies are like, oh, this is great. And I'm like, there's got to be something. You know, I'll try it. And I couldn't actually even put it in my mouth without, like, gagging. Um, it was just my response. Why do I tell you that? Uh, on a Sunday morning, uh, as we're looking at God's Word. Well, believe it or not, we're going to look at a uh, reaction that Jesus had, was, which is the same sort of reaction. Jesus, something that made Jesus gag. And that's the, the picture here in Revelation 3. Um, now, he didn't just tell the church, you make me gag, and then leave it. Um, he could have, but he actually gave them a remedy and a rescue and re a reward, actually, for them to consider. So it's, it's shocking, but it's for our good to recognize this truth and certainly for the good of the church in Laodicea, uh, which was the church that he was responding to. So let's look together at Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 22. Before we do, let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word, and, and even when it's hard, even when it shocks us, Lord, we know your character never changes. You're not, you're not interested in shock. You're interested in truth and goodness and 
love and mercy. If you're interested in helping um, all those who would run to you, and certainly that includes your beloved children, so thank you. And Lord, we want to hear from you from your word. We want to take uh, the warnings that we ought to take, and we also want to run after the blessings and the rewards that you offer in you. So speak to us and change our lives through your word and be glorified in this by our worthy God, we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 14, as Jesus is speaking, he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God's word from Revelation 3, 14 to 22. Well, this is a strong word for church that's lost its way. Probably the strongest of uh, all the seven different addresses to the seven different representative churches. This church has lost its way, so Christ has a shocking word for them. He says that you're neither hot nor cold. Um, you're useless as far as water goes. Um, you're lukewarm, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That word actually, uh, that's somewhat of a euphemistic way to say it. The word more literally translated is, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. So you get the picture, I think. This image is intended to shock this church into change and really to shock us into examining ourselves as a church and as individuals to say, Lord, would there be any shade of resemblance between Laodicea and our church or my life? The lesson we learn that Jesus is bringing to this church is that we are wretched left to ourselves, but we are radiant in Jesus. We are wretched left to ourselves, but we are radiant in Jesus. So let's dig in and learn from this passage. I'm going to more or less go through the passage, but first I actually want to focus in on verse 17. I want to focus in on how this church thinks about itself so that we have kind of that background and we understand why Christ addresses them the way he does. He says of them, he puts words in their mouth because he knows their works, right? So he's the sovereign one. He's the faithful and true witness, the amen, the the originator of creation. He's Lord of all. He holds the seven stars. He walks among the lampstands. So he knows them better than they know themselves. And so when he puts words in their mouths, he's, he's not saying something that isn't true. And he says of them, For you say, I am rich. 
I have prospered, and I need nothing. This is how the church thinks of itself. The church's self-assessment is, I am rich, I'm prospered, I need nothing. Things are good. Life is good. The church is good. We're all set as a church. They, they were probably a wealthy church. We know historically that they were wealthy, but this thing, I'm rich, it is the claim that they're wealthy. They probably were wealthy in resources. Those resources probably perhaps included people. Maybe it was a popular church. Maybe everybody in Laodicea wanted to be part of this group. It was rich in resources, probably rich in material wealth. There were wealthy people in the church. Maybe the whole church was full of wealthy people. But they have this idea as they look at themselves that that we're rich. We're wealthy. They say, we, I have prospered. They've done well. These people have done well in, in, by certain standards. They've prospered in their, probably their businesses, their different endeavors. They've been successful. They've dreamed the dream and they've lived the dream. And then they say, I need nothing. They have this sense that, look, we've arrived. We're all set. This is great. Life is good for us. We need nothing. Now we know from history... Uh, some things about this church, some things actually about the city of Laodicea. We know from history that it was actually very prosperous and it had a lot of very wealthy people. There were people that were, were just so wealthy, they were regular people, uh, or, but were so wealthy that they bought themselves into royalty from Laodicea. This was a place with a lot of wealth. It was a place that did really well in its endeavors as well. Uh, it was known for producing this fine, glossy black wool, like maybe a Merlino wool. Um, and, and it was really popular. It was, it was all the rave in Rome, actually. So there, the place that's kind of designing, you know, it's like a Paris, maybe, or something, designing all the clothes that everybody wants. That's what's going on from Laodicea. It also was a producer of a unique eye salve that was used, a medicine for the eyes that was basically the best medicine you could get for eye problems. came out of Laodicea. And so they were, they were rich. They were prosperous. They were successful. They were admired by others. Others said, we want to you know, be like Laodicea, prosperous, and, and they were the envy of all the cities around them, really. They were so self-assured and so wealthy, actually, that in 60 AD, the city had, when it had a major earthquake, a devastating earthquake, and the emperor said, I can fund you guys to rebuild, and typically any city that got that offer would take it and depended on that. They said, we're all set, to the emperor himself. And they used their own money to rebuild the city. And uh, Bible commentator Grant Osborne says of this, the buildings that resulted from the reconstruction were were remarkable. A gymnasium, a stadium with a semicircular track 900 feet long, a triple gate and towers, and several beautiful buildings. In other words, the town was perhaps even more beautiful after the reconstruction. So we know that about the city, and what we can say in looking at Revelation 3 is that the attitude of the city, the attitude of the culture, permeated and dominated, right, the attitude of the church, because it looks like they're synonymous, they're the same attitude, that the church had failed to stand as a faithful witness. They had failed to be distinct from the culture in ways that believers are supposed to be distinct. When the culture deviates from biblical values and behavior, the church is to stand distinctly from that culture, and that but this church had failed. They were not faithful witnesses. They were just like this self-assured, shallow culture. The problem was they 
Not that they were rich, but they were arrogant and blind to their true state and their true need. It's actually very similar to what God says to Israel, and in particular the, the tribe of Ephraim in Hosea 12.8. It says, Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. We can reject this verse, I believe. I have found wealth for myself, and all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. So back in the day of, of Hosea, back in the day hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, they had committed the same sin. They had made the same mistake. They, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, and, and I'm good, I'm sinless. No one's going to look at me and, and see my need, my need materially or spiritually. And that's what was going on in Laodicea. Guys, we can do the same thing. We tend to do the same thing, don't we? We like to have a sense of security and stability in ourselves. We love to get to the place where we can say, I'm all set. And that can lead us to places where, where we're arrogant and, and blind to, to our real needs. It happens all the time. Um, I had an interaction, uh, actually my wife had an interaction some years ago with, with a, uh, someone we knew, and and this person who was a fairly good person, a fairly devout religious person, when, we, when my Peg talked about the good news of Christ, Christ dying for our sins, this person said, I hope I never did anything for which Christ had to die. In all sincerity, uh, someone who would have professed belief in Christ dying for sins said, I, I hope I never did anything. And it was just was shocking to hear that, to realize she actually thinks that she's not done anything for, for what Christ needs to die. She doesn't think she needs forgiveness. Um, and it, it's a picture of Laodicea, but it's a picture of us, isn't it? We do the same thing. We can build our lives and our sense of self around accomplishments and accolades, and we can think we're above needing help. We can think we really don't need Jesus or his church. Boy, there's a lot of ways that that gets worked out in our lives. Um, I think sometimes our lack of pursuit of grace God's grace, of help from God, of what he offers freely in Christ is a sign of that. And I think our lack of pursuit of what we call the means of grace, the ways that God reminds us and refreshes us in that grace, is a picture, I think, of a Laodicean heart. I don't mean to say that at every time when we don't pursue the means of grace that, that that's what's going on, but I, but I at times wonder this and I don't say this to make us feel guilty, but to examine our hearts this past week, we had our monthly prayer time. There were about seven of us. That's about 4% of our whole church there. And I know there's totally good reasons not to be there for many of us. Totally fine. We, we are not a church that's going to require these sort of things. But I did think, you know, I, I just, Lord, this scares me a little bit. Because I don't want our church ever to be self-assured that we're all set never presume upon the grace that we've experienced. You know, there's times when we had our 50, 15th anniversary celebration. It was very encouraging, wonderful. But there's a side to that that, I, that scares me because we can start to think we've arrived, we're all set, we need nothing. And let us never do that. Let us never take a small step towards Laodicea by not pursuing the Lord. And however that may work its way out. Yes, I, I hope it does work its way out and that a lot of us gather for our monthly prayer time together. Just as an expression of, Lord, I need you. Lord, I'm not all set. 
I'm not wealthy. I'm not rich in and of myself. Apart from you and your grace in my life, I have nothing ultimately of true worth. And our church has nothing apart from you. We need you. And so we come to pray together to say simply this, Lord, we need you and we want you. We depend on you. Now, there are lots of other ways that we can express that as well. But I think that that's just a picture and maybe a metric, something to, for us to look at and think, do, do we look like the Laodiceans in some way? Yes, I think we can. And our lack of pursuit of God's grace. It's grace. It's gift. It's out of his love. It's freely offered. But, but there's an aspect where we pursue that, where we seek, seek him together through things like prayer and gathering as his people. Let us be a people who realize that we are not rich in and of ourselves. To realize the truth that we are, apart from Christ, we are ultimately wretched. Um, and we need him and his grace to work in our lives. That's what Jesus wants to get through to this church. He wants them to recognize that they are wretched in and of themselves. So he uses this imagery. So that this is first what they think about themselves. Are they rich? No, they're not. Now, what Jesus says about them, this shocking word, it's redemptive word, this shocking word that you are wretched. He uses this picture of hot and cold and lukewarm water. Now, we've been going through Revelation, and I, I trust we're learning that. He knew all these churches well, and so he spoke in ways that were really relevant to them, ways that would get their attention. Well, you know from history that Laodicea did not have a healthy water supply. Laodicea actually relied on... Um, uh, water, well actually they drew water out of a hot spring nearby. And so it was hot water and it was full of calcium carbonate. It had a lot of deposits in it. It was kind of nasty water. And what they had to do is put it in a in, in different vases and so forth, uh, containers, and set it aside for it to cool off and settle and so forth. So the natural water they experienced was lukewarm and it had so much calcium carbonate, if you just drank it straight, it would make you sick. So it wasn't cold. Cold water is great, right? It refreshes. Hot water you can use to make hot drinks and so forth. It was neither. It was lukewarm. So the idea is not that they were you know, either on fire for Jesus, hot, or cold. I'd rather have you just be cold and don't care. That's not what Jesus is saying. Sometimes that's how people have understood that. That's not the point. The point is hot and cold water is useful. Lukewarm water is revolting. And so Jesus is saying, guys, just like your water supply, you guys think you're all set, but actually you're revolting to me. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. My response to your behavior, you think you're great. You think you're, you're wonderful. And I'm telling you guys, it's, it's awful. The situation is awful. It's shocking to them. He says, instead of thinking of yourselves as rich and prosperous and you don't need anything, this is how I describe you. You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You're wretched. Something that's wretched, it's, it's in a state where it's destitute. It's bankrupt. They're bankrupt. They're, they're destitute. They, they're in this terrible, low state. They're pitiable. Instead of being an object of admiration, the other cities nearby, you may think you're great and admire you, but you're, you're actually you're pitiable. People should have pity on you. You're poor. You're without resources. Yes, you might have material resources, but true, valuable, lasting resources. You guys are poor. You don't have those. You're blind, you're lacking insight and true understanding. And you're naked, you're bare, without dignity and honor in your state. So everything they thought they were was just the opposite. 
just the opposite. Their assessment was a worldly one, not a godly one, and they totally missed it. They were pursuing success in the eyes of their culture and evaluating themselves through the eyes and standards of their culture instead of through Jesus' standard. And apparently they were compromising, really, with the culture. We don't know the details, but there's some background, right? We've talked about the background where the culture was strongly into uh, either emperor worship or if it was part of the Jewish culture, uh, into the synagogues. And, and Christians were being put out of the synagogue, so they weren't allowed to be uh, believers in Jesus as Messiah, Jews or God-fearers, so they were being put out. And they were being put out of all the advantages of, of the Roman culture of pagan worship. And we don't know, but it's likely that these guys were compromising on, those, on their proclamation. They were doing whatever it took to stay involved in all the advantage and privilege that they had, all the material wealth, and they had lost the distinctiveness that God's people are supposed to have. They had lost the true virtues and true riches and the true attire that God looked for. And they needed to see that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They were compromising and were destitute as a result. Guys, this is the story of the emperor's new clothes, right? That's, a, that's what the story is. You guys you know that story, classic story? I actually tried to look up to see if there were alternates, like other stories out there. There was nothing I could find that was like the story of the emperor's new clothes because it, it's a story that captures what we're talking about. When someone thinks they're actually looking great and doing great, and it's just totally the opposite. So the storyline, right, of the emperor's new clothes, is this emperor, he's, he's proud and he's vain. He's interested in himself more than his subjects. He's interested in the latest styles and how he looks. And, and so he's always trying to acquire better and better uh, suits of clothes. And finally, some guys who are uh, scammers, you know, get a hold of this and they say, hey, look, we have this really amazing cloth. Uh, it's so fine and so refined that, that only the most discerning can really see it and appreciate it. And anybody who's not discerning, who's not, you know, kind of doesn't have taste and and, and anyone who's incompetent, they're not going to see this cloth. And so they begin the deception of making all this cloth and putting it on. And all the while, the, the emperor is thinking, okay, I can't really see it, but I'm not going to tell anybody. Um, and they go through the whole thing, and he, put, he puts the suit of clothes on and parades through the town, right? And everyone uh, has been told this is so fine that, you know, that, that uh, it's so beautiful that only the most discerning can really appreciate it, and it's only undiscerning and incompetent people who can't really appreciate it. So nobody wants to admit that they can't see it until finally a child who's not uh, into such pretense shouts out, he doesn't have anything on. And all of a sudden everyone realizes that that's the truth. The story continues actually that the emperor is still too proud to admit that he's naked in front of everybody. Too proud to admits the truth. That's what's going on here in Laodicea. These guys think they look great. By the standard of the world, they do, but by God's standard, they don't. They don't look great. They are poor, blind, and naked. Well, I think for us, we need to ask ourselves, are we honestly assessing who we are? Because guys, we, we can laugh at the emperor's new clothes. We can think, wow, Laodicea thinks we're really serious. And, and by the way, I don't think uh, anyone here that I know of, and us as a church, we're aware Laodicea is. That's not why I'm saying this. But there are tendencies that we all have um, 
to go that way. And by the way, there was a day when Laodicea was not where Laodicea is here in Revelation 3, right? At one point in time, uh, we know that they were ministered to by Paul. Paul knew this church. It was a new church. Uh, it was connected to the church in Ephesus. Uh, so there was a day when it was a healthy church. How did they get there? One small step at a time, right? So we all have the tendency, and they just kept on taking steps. So there's lessons for us, and one of the lessons is, are we honestly assessing ourselves? Can we look at ourselves as God sees us? Or are we caught up in denying that? Do we, are we caught up too worried about what others think of us or too insecure to face the reality that we all have deep needs? I was just talking to someone this week. We all put up this perception in front of others that we're all set. And, and as a pastor, often when I'm helping people going through crisis, they, we, all, we all do this. We feel like you know, no one else in the world is as messed up as I am right now. Right? I've got problems, and boy, I feel isolated and alone. And I always tell them, no. The reality is everybody's messed up in some way, and at some point in life we all have struggles, serious struggles. We all, left to ourselves, are poor, blind, and naked. We all have deep needs. We all at times feel terrible about ourselves. We all fail and we disappoint others. We all break our own rules. We all fail to be the people we know we ought to be. We all get lonely at times. We all get depressed at times. We all get angry. We all will be tempted to self and be full of self-pity. We all will get angry. We all struggle with self-righteousness. We all can be vengeful. All these ugly things and more. That's the reality of our condition. The question is, can you face those things and honestly assess yourself and recognize that left to yourself, you are poor, blind, and naked. Now the good news here is that Jesus doesn't leave them in that state, right? He, he brings the analysis so they would understand, and then as the faithful and true witness, he calls them to, to repent and to change. And he offers them something that will truly grant them something to have true riches and to be clothed and to, be, uh, to deal with their blindness, to be able to see. And so he counsels them uh, in verse 18. He counsels them to buy gold refined in the fire. Uh, that's akin, I think, to what he says in 1 Peter 1, if we could project that verse. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter's talking to the church, churches in Asia Minor, actually, uh, and seeking to encourage them and remind them of the gospel, remind them of what they have in Jesus. And he says, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is telling the church that, that guys, your faith is like gold. Gold gets tested by the fire. Your faith gets tested by the fire to prove it, to refine it, and so that in the, in the end it will be precious and it will result in reward. So what I believe Jesus is saying in Revelation is similar to this. That guys, your faith in me Trusting in me, belonging to me, is that gold. And in me, you can purchase it. It's actually free. We, we, don't, we don't spend anything, actually. We just receive it. But what we do is we have to leave behind all of our self-righteousness, uh, our self-effort, our sin. 
all the ways that we would try to establish our sense of self and life apart from God, we have to leave that all behind. So in a sense, we pay that, and we receive what he has. We receive gold refined by the fire. Gold that will endure the trials. And, and part of what he's doing, I think, with Laodicea is these guys don't want to go through the trials, so they're not proclaiming Jesus. They're not identifying themselves. They realize if we do that, we're going to lose our money. We're going to be poor in the world. We're going to be undesirable, unadmired by others. And Jesus is saying, guys, sell all that stuff and buy the gold that is faith in me. And yes, that will be refined by those trials and it will, will prove itself of great value, of enduring value, of precious value beyond anything you could ever imagine. He offers them white garments to cover their shame. So they're naked. Spiritually, they're naked. They're, they're living without, they're bankrupt. They have no honor or dignity to, to really cover themselves. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you white garments to cover your shame. The glorious white garments. Better than your black wool garments that are so famous. I'm going to give you white garments to cover your shame. The Bible says to us that all of our deeds, apart from God, are like filthy rags. That's what we wear. We're naked or we have filthy rags. Even our best efforts have some elements of selfishness and imperfection. Jesus offers us white garments. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we need rescue from our nakedness apart from Jesus, our emptiness, our bankruptcy, our lack of true honor and dignity. And he came in his glorious life. He lived a life of holiness and obedience, of loving his Father, loving others perfectly in every way. He lived a life where, where his life was clothed with garments that were not dirty rags in any way, but beautiful. And pleasing to God, the Father said, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. He said that uh, given his life, his obedience, his faithfulness. And he took that glorious, holy, worthy life, that beautiful life, and he offered it on the cross for us. And so that by faith in him, by turning away from our self-effort and our sin and turning to him, putting our faith in him, in him all of our sins are paid for by his blood shed for us. And we are given his righteousness. Those are white garments, ultimately. His righteousness. We clothe ourselves in Christ. When we trust in him, when we run to him and trust in him, we are clothed in him. And, and the Father looks at us and sees Christ as the clothing on us and says, yes, I am pleased with you, my son or daughter. That's the wonder of, of what we have in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 you can project that, says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the wonder of the good news. Jesus had no sin. Had no stain spiritually. Only holy, only good, only perfect. God in the flesh. And God, the triune God, in counsel together, God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, to bear our sins on the cross, to pay for our sins, to pay the full price, to be sin, to so identify with our sin that, that the Scripture would say he, he is sin, and to pay the penalty for that, that in him, through faith in him, we might become what? The righteousness of God. A perfect, complete 
final righteousness, being counted or being credited as if we had never sinned and had only done the maximum good at all times, loving God perfectly, loving others completely, all the time. All of our thoughts, all of our affections, all the things of our heart, as we talk about in our Sunday school class, as if those were all good, all loving, all wise, all true in Christ. That's what we're credited with. Those are the white garments that we wear in Christ. And this new life in Christ also leads to a life of abiding in Him and actually true righteous deeds that we're able to accomplish, even in our weakness. There are, we can please the Lord by grace. And those are an aspect that Revelation touches as well, the deeds of the saints, the lifestyle of a believer. We are actually rewarded for it. Even though it's full of imperfection and at times sin, there is true good motivations. There is love for God and for others in that. And those are the white garments. And that's what he counsels these guys to wear, to find these white garments, to come to Him, to trust in Him for their uh, attire, to trust in Him for their sense of honor and dignity, to look to Him. And the Laodiceans need the salve to that Jesus gives so they can really see things. They need their eyes to be open to be able to first look at their nakedness in their arrogance and their failure so they could then look at Jesus clearly and run to Him and trust Him. We need to see. They need to see truth. They need to see His love. They need to behold Him for who He is. That's what He's calling them to do, to, to find these things, this these riches, this attire, this medicine for your soul. Real riches, real attire, real medicine. Not just merely the material type. So, question is, again, as we look at the latest scenes, is do we resemble them in any way? Are we putting our hope in other things, in the gold or garments or prosperity that we might generate? There's nothing wrong with those things. God's creation is good. The problem is, is when we make those things our sense of accomplishment and identity and security. That's the problem, not the thing. So you don't cure this, by the way. At times, the church has made the mistake, right, of thinking, if I get rid of money and I live, you know, a, a vow of poverty, and I go dwell in a cave by myself my whole life, just me and my Bible and the Holy Spirit, I'll be holy. No, it doesn't work. The problem wasn't the outward stuff. There's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with, with food and clothing and, and even riches. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes riches are the reward of a diligent, faithful life. The problem is how we regard those things, standing on those things. Jesus isn't telling them to necessarily give up their prosperity, but to pursue true prosperity, to see that it's life in Christ, it's the gold and the garments and the Sabbath He offers. So, brother or sister, anybody here, do you put your hope in stuff or in Jesus? Where's your sense of accomplishment and worth grounded? Jesus counsels us to buy gold refined from a fire, white garments to wear, salve to put on our eyes that we might truly see, be truly rich, be truly clothed. 
And he gives this church powerful motivation. There are rewards in verses 19 through 22. Rewards offered to them. Powerful motivation for them. He says first that those whom he loves, he reproves and disciplines. He loves these guys. Jesus loves this church. Jesus loves the church in Laodicea. He looks at them and he loves them. Even though he's had harsh words for them, he loves them. He wants what's good for them. He wants them to find what's good. So he says, be zealous and repent. Why? Because I love you. I'm saying this as someone who loves you. I'm saying this as someone who cares for you. I'm saying this as someone who's laid my life down for you. I'm not being just someone who's mean here or bossy. I'm not just like laying down the law because I like to lay down the law. I'm I'm calling you guys this because I love you. I want what's best for you. I want you to be rich. I want you to, to have glorious attire. I want you to be healthy in the very best way, spiritually and eternally. I love you, he says. So be earnest and repent. Stop pursuing those other things and come back to me. That's what Jesus is saying. Guys, he loves us. And our motivation to pursue these things is because he loves us. He's laid his life down for us. He's given us his entire, everything he owns for us. That in him we might have everything. And he promises to use all all things for our good. He loves us. So we're to be zealous and repent. We're to to remember what he's done for us. Guys, remembering his love is a powerful motivator. And where do we see his love most clearly and brilliantly displayed? On the cross. In bearing sin and bearing the holy justice of God, the holy wrath of God, drinking that cup to the last drop, drinking the cup that you poured and I poured and we poured. We created the response that God has, his holy response towards our sin. We filled the cup up in our choices and our rebellion. And Jesus drank that cup to the last drop. That was, that was the horror of Gethsemane for him. He knew what was coming. He knew he was going to have to drink the cup that you filled. He knew he was going to have to drink it to the last drop, and he did. He loves you that much. He's given himself for you. He's given his all to you and to me. He wants us to know that he loves us and and the response to him for what he's done to say, Jesus, forgive me, please. I don't want to compromise. I don't want to be an unfaithful witness. I want to put my life in you to such a degree that I'm willing to stand up to the people who will kick me out of my job because of my faith. I'm willing to sacrifice these things. Why? Because you have loved me and you're for me and you're with me and I get to be with you forever. And that's more precious than anything else. That's his promise and his call. Be zealous and repent. Why? Because I love you. And he promises to come and eat with us, it says in verse 20. That's a well-known verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus stands at that door. He stands at that door knocking. He stands at that door as a king, by the way. He has a right to break down the door and come in. He's a king. But he wants to be heard, and he wants to be invited in. He knocks at the door. Would you let me in? I want to come in 
and eat with you and you with me. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to have a significant, real, ongoing relationship with you. Just as you have with the people that you sit down to eat with every day, right? Those are your, usually those are the people that are closest to us. We sit down and eat with them. We build relationship with them. They know us. We know them. There's trust. Even more so, but Jesus, he wants to come in and eat with us. He wants to have this relationship with us. He wants us to find our joy and strength by being with him. And so he knocks at that door and says, let me in. I want to have this relationship. And I want to have this relationship that will go on forever. A deep and lasting friendship with God. That's actually deeper than the very deepest human relationship. We know that marriage is a picture ultimately of Christ's relationship with the church. It's only a picture of it. The very deepest human relationships are only a picture of the depth that God would have with us. Boy, when we know him like that, when we know him in his glory and goodness and he's that close to us, that gives us power to not worry so much about what our neighbors might think about our faith or others might think about us. Sure, we're still to love them and care for them, but, but we're willing to sacrifice their approval. Because Jesus is that precious to us because we walk with him. And then he promises them a great reward. It's amazing. To those who overcome, you will get to sit where? With me on my throne. You get to sit with me on my throne. You're not just in the audience. You're not just somewhere in the crowd. You are with me on my throne. You are by my side as a co-ruler, as a prince or princess, a sub-king or sub-queen with me. I'm on my throne, and just as I endured, and I was a faithful witness despite being crucified, I call you by grace, by my grace, by staying close to me, by seeing things this way, to endure yourself as well and to be a faithful witness. So that you can sit with me, just as I was invited to sit with my Father. You get to sit with me. Guys, there will be no better day than to sit with him and have him say, well done. And to receive the honor, the amazing honor of sitting with God the Son, to be treated like that. And we know in Scripture, the crowns we receive are cast down at his feet. As we recognize it's all by His grace, all by His love, all by His power. But that is the promise. That's the reward here. That's the blessing. To sit with Him. So His love, His presence, and the reward of the honor of sitting with Him are promises that should motivate us to pursue true riches and true attire and true health in him. So as the band comes up and we transition, let's uh, just take a moment to think. Is there some small step that I've been taking towards Laodicea? Is there some habit, some belief, some perception, perspective in my life? Maybe some practice. Maybe for you it's as simple as, look, I'm, I'm going to make put it on calendar to pray every month with the church. That's one application, and that would be wonderful. Maybe it's that, you know, I just need to be part of a small group, or maybe I just need to start my day reading my Bible. 
you know, get my Bible out and say just at the beginning of the day, Lord, I need you. I'm just going to read a verse and pray today because left to myself, I'm wretched. But in you, by your grace, I'm radiant. What, what is one, one step maybe you're taking towards Laodicea and one thing you can do to turn around and run back to Jesus? Let's consider that before we transition to song and communion.